Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. What do you mean? Everybody? What do you want me to do the show by myself? I don't understand what you... Our broadcast today begins with journalism profits continuing to fall, resulting in the cancellation of dozens of newspapers nationally. The dip has rocked an already failing industry, causing some newsrooms to become understaffed and underfunded. But rest assured, NNN is still here to provide you with all the groundbreaking news you need to stay informed, provided that information feeds into your confirmation bias. To tell us more about journalism's decline, NNN's Larry Johnson is live on the scene. Larry. Larry! Uh, uh, thanks, Barry. Well, the state of journalism as it is... And that's all the budget we had for that story. Now we turn to our diverse panel of experts to discuss the possible political reasons news viewership may be waning. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Now the government. I completely agree. I'm very against it. These two are moral. Uh, okay. The economy. Absolutely against that. I'm very for it. Both these two are loud like siren and smart like bag of hammers. Donald Trump. You would realize that it takes more than simply a gut reaction, which is what most of my colleagues and opponents on the right prefer to do with whatever the situation is. Aha. No, you listen to me when I'm speaking. Hey, hey, what do you think you're... Now let's see what folks on the street have to say about the death of the journalism industry or whatever. Well, I mean, it's a sad state of affairs. Like, next thing you know, if you keep understaffing and underfunding these places, you could just end up with, like, one-man news teams. You know, journalists going out, integrity goes out the window. Next thing you know, they're making up sources and even just staging interviews entirely by themselves. Look, folks, you, the people, Deserve information that will inform and illuminate you, even through cutbacks. Even if I have to run this whole place myself now. Even if we couldn't afford to pay the electric bill this month. And that was the No News Network reporting on the decline of the corporate media these days. And thank you for that report, brought to you by Matt Curtis and written by Greg Guevara. And now on Arts Express... Let them come. There is one dwarf yet in Moria who still draws breath. Nobody tosses a dwarf. Here's one dwarf she won't ensnare so easily. I have the eyes of a hawk and the ears of a fox. The dwarf breathed so loud we could have shot him in the dark. So much for the legendary courtesy of the elves. Speak words we can all understand. We have not had dealings with the dwarves since the dark days. And you know what this dwarf says to that? Ishkakui, Aigorugnul. That was not so courteous. What was her gift? I asked her for one hair from her golden head. She gave me three. Esteemed veteran British actor John Rhys-Davies, perhaps best known portraying that dwarf warrior Gimli, along with the voice of Treebeard in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and Sala in the Indiana Jones films, phones in from his home in New Zealand to talk about his current turn as a new and different character, or perhaps not so new, as yet another conventionally small creature, Cupid, in the updated mythological satire Bad Cupid. The eminent stage actor as well, who has portrayed figures in nearly every Shakespearean play, somehow gets into character as Cupid during this conversation 
while his wife can be heard doing the dishes in the background. Could I talk to Prairie Miller, please? Yes, this is she. Hello, and... Hello, she. This is Reese Davis calling you from sunny New Zealand. Where... Yes, I heard about that, and welcome to our show. Be my pleasure to be on it. Okay, and you're phoning into New York, by the way. Yes, I know. Damned expensive, but never mind. My <laughs> life is over. Just save the children. <laughs> now, why this rather new and different direction for you, getting on board with Bad Cupid? No. Uh, no, I, I, it's not a new direction. I, I, it was, it was a, a script that I liked. I thought it was funny. I thought the character was different. Most actors get asked basically to repeat the last success they were in. Producers, obviously, with a, a need to make their money back, uh, you know, like to find a, a bankable formula. Um, so our actors are often typecast, uh, uh, and um, any chance you get to to break that mold and break that type, um, I think, is rather fun. And what intrigued you about portraying this unconventional Cupid? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, the truth of the matter is when you're born into that family, you have certain duties to perform, don't you? I mean, my mother, well, God knows she put it about a bit, and Mars, my father, well, he's been known to get into it of rough housing from time to time, and Grandpa, well, Grandpa would, uh, how can I delicately put this for the ears of your tender New York audience, mm -hmm. Grandpa Zeus would nail anything that moved. Um, so it's a difficult, it's a difficult heritage, really, and, uh, you know, I've been doing it for a long time. Now we gods stick around, you give them a job, you do it. Poor Hephaestus is still hammering over that fire. Uh, you know, Sisyphus has to push that rock up the hill, and I have to try and persuade. Uh, totally irrational animals uh, uh, to, to, to breed and at the same time have a wonderful and happy life together. Hmm. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> it's enough to make a strong man weep. But I'm stronger, and I don't weep. I just hate them. I hate humans. They are irrational. They are stupid. They are vain. They imagine that their line in the latest com uh, uh, accumulation of, of polymorphic perversities is unique to them and their times. I've seen it all, madam. I've seen it all, and it sickens and bores me to death. Well, these are, of course, American people. How do you feel this film and these characters would have played out differently if it were a British story instead, culturally and otherwise? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, we British like to think we are, you know. Just a tad superior to you chaps, but the truth of the matter is... Um, it would be different. The tone would be different. Uh, I'm hoping that we, in, in fact, I, I already know there are one or two others in the works. And I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing Cupid at various countries at different times, don't you think? I'm, uh, to, to, to be the, uh, you know, to, be the, uh, to have the amorous uh, obligations of looking after Henry VIII at an early stage, middle stage, and late stage of his love life would surely be... Uh, um, uh, something quite risible, wouldn't it? Um, uh, and, and Renaissance Italy. Um, that would be a, a, a splendid opportunity to wax lyrical about uh, a Venus made flesh in a shell full of sea. <laughs> Botticelli, you know, had a, gla had a glimpse of uh, uh, my mother bathing. My mother, it's, you know, it's, She's getting on a bit, but she's still got the figure. Um, <laughs> yep. uh, now, this is also a generation gap story. 
What are your thoughts about how the generations play out in the movie and your own perspective on that younger generation, satirical and otherwise? Well, uh, I mean, speaking as Archie, uh, there's nothing really new under the sun. They're all equally stupid uh, and detestable. Occasionally, you find one or two that can make an engaging remark and you quite like. Um, as an actor, of course, I, I love working with, with young actors and actresses. Um, um, very stimulating, very challenging. Um, and uh, and a delight, and uh, you know the, the it, it, it's sometimes nice to be able uh, to have reached that august age where where in fact you can gently whisper in into a young actor's ear something that'll help them without being regarded as being wholly suspicious and determined to de destroy their performance. Uh, but um, the generation gap, well, it's always there. I have a 14-year-old daughter, and uh, believe me, I, I, am, I am certainly older than Archie will ever be in her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and what are your thoughts looking back on your work in the Indiana Jones and Lord of the Rings films and in most of Shakespeare's works on stage? Well, I've only done 26 of them, to be honest with you, of, of the Shakespeare's, which is which is which is a trifle compared to some of my contemporaries who stayed on at the Royal Shakespeare Company and probably ended up doing the whole lot. Um, uh, Shakespeare, of course, is 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 the measure by which we take ourselves as actors, um, because of the complexities and because of the demands. I remember being at the Royal Shakespeare Company in. 78, 79, when we were doing, 77, 78, 79, when we were doing the Henry VI plays, uh, you know, and when that, when that schedule goes up on the board backstage and you realize, and people realize that they're going to be doing three full-length Shakespeare plays in one day, there is not an, a young actor there who does not gulp and wonder, God, can I do this? But of course, anyone who's actually done it um, has a reserve of confidence that uh, that can carry them quite happily through m most of the demands of a career. Uh, it, it's uh, Shakespeare is a great backing, and uh, I had the privilege of going to an old-style boarding school in England, where by the time I had left, I had played. Ben Johnson's Volpone, I had played Ulysses in Troilus and Cressida, and I had played Othello, um, uh, which sort of sets you up reasonably well for the music of the language and the pace and the rhythm. Um, yeah, I was lucky. But then my whole career has been lucky. Uh, for most actors to do one great part or one good part in a great thing is is just about the high spot of their career you know to get a to 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 get a a soap that goes on for years is is a career um you know i had the pleasure of doing for instance uh, i was in the naked civil servant i was in i claudius i even got an emmy nomination for shogun uh, you know, I did Victor Victoria, I did Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Sliders, Lord of the Rings, um, and a few others in between. Um, it's, I'm sure you will interview many finer actors, but you will never interview a more fortunate one. And we'll return to this conversation with John Reese davies with much more to come including when he once heckled Margaret Thatcher in Parliament as a youth and why, and his upcoming portrayal of Darwin opponent Samuel Wilberforce in Darwin and Malibu, in which the two men, along with Thomas Huxley, debate on the deck of a Pacific beach house over 100 years after all of their deaths. But unfortunately, as we say in radio, the clock is our enemy. 
So stay tuned for all of that on an upcoming show. And Bad Cupid is out now in virtual theaters. You're listening to Arts Express, and coming up next, we've been hearing from the Trump supporters who stormed Capitol Hill that Trump told them to. Blaming leaders for influencing followers psychologically is nothing new, but this apparently really happened under the power of political hypnosis back in post-World War II Denmark, as Nazis there, still lurking about, turned to hypnosis to control followers to rebuild their movement through bank holdups and murders. And that little-known history is the subject of the dramatic feature Murderous Trance, starring actor Josh Lucas. And Lucas is our guest on the show to explain, playing that real-life Nazi hypnotist. And what getting into character for him had to do with jet lag flying to the Croatian film set accents, and a huge range of cast from around the world, as well as playing the Beat Generation's Neil Cassidy in Big Sur and portraying Charles Lindbergh in Clint Eastwood's J. Edgar. Lucas will also drop hints about his next starring role in the final Purge film, The Forever Purge. First, some scenes from Murderous Trance, then Josh Lucas. Put your hands up. You, fill the briefcase. So you shot two innocent people just so you could raise the money for your vision of equality. I don't remember. In hypnosis, you can set locks in the mind. Nielsen has cleverly implanted a code. It could be a sign, a memory, a voice. Can we find another way to break this lock? You get to manipulate and use me if you let me to do the same to you. Concentrate on my voice. Five. Are you spying on me? Four. See, he's manipulating you. Three. All of your failings are erased. Two. One. We're trying to help you. show oh thank you i'm happy to be on it okay. i was just saying I'm, I'm i'm happy to you know to talk about this movie because it's been a long hard ride for us to get the movie out there and we always believed in this movie so thank you for doing a little something for us or for it even if you write something awful about it <laughs> <laughs> well it is quite a fascinating movie what was it about this film and story for you murderous trance that drew you in you know, as much, look, it's a true story. It's a crazy, amazing true story. I love the, the filmmaker. I, I went and did a bunch of research on him. But mainly the thing that got me was the conversations I had with the director, Arto, about the idea that he really believes this is a little, you know, slice of a small story of how one person manipulates another person. But that the bigger story is how media can manipulate, how a government can manipulate, how symbols can manipulate, how all these, you know, he talked about the Nazi party, he talked about Hitler, he bluntly, he talked about Trump, and he talked about, you know, the ideas of, of how um, a, a movement um, through manipulation can, can, can occur. And so I was like, wow, those are some really interesting ideas. Um, and then he knows hypnosis pretty intensively, the director, and so he, he talked to me a lot about how hypnosis works and how to use it um, and how he was going to use it in the editing and in the filmmaking. And I, I just, I was, I was on board. And look, I got to go to Croatia, which yeah. is beautiful. 
<laughs> it was a there was a lot of things happening that made me very interested. Yeah. And speaking about Trump, murderous trance is about the hypnotic power of some men over others, whether real as in hypnosis or metaphorical. And we see this in the current charges against Trump and his followers, with his followers claiming they invaded the Capitol because they were following Trump's orders. Much as we see in this film, what can you say about that? Look, I adamantly think that is what happened. Um, and I think that this movie attempts to show the way that a, you know, a leader, a very charismatic leader uses um, words and uses symbols and uses body language and uses, you know, look, you know, the, the Make America Hat Great, the color red, like all these very interesting things that were happening. I, I have no doubt that the that his followers believed very clearly that he was giving them a um, you know a a route in a sense or a order if you want to say and I, I we talked about that very strongly um, with this movie while we were making it. And what about playing the real life historical figure Bjorn Nelson that fascinated you? And how did you go about getting inside the rather complicated? psychological personality to play Nielsen? There was actually a decent amount of um, written material both by him and about him that the director had scrounged up. You know, the director had waited years to make this movie because he had interviewed with many people who were involved in the story and he needed to wait for some of them to die before he could make the movie. Um, and that... It was a very personal, um, very well-researched story by the director. And so he gave me all that. So I was able to kind of really get into that. But then what fascinated me is why, you know, why does this guy act the way he acts? And, and I think, um, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely that great quote. And I really, you know, I really was interested in like discovering, like imagine having control of another human being. I would never want that. But I do think, you know, for a, a, a sick personality like Bjorn Skånielsen, that he, he, he reveled in it. And the main way that I was able to kind of get into it was sort of a mistake. I arrived in Zagreb, Croatia. We filmed the entire movie in eight days, or my part of it in eight days. And I was extremely jet lagged. And so every day I wasn't sleeping, not by choice, but through jet lag. And I, I watched myself look worse and feel worse. And you know how, you know how when you're jet lagged or when you're exhausted, you have a temper. My temper was getting more extreme, you know, and I was, I was able to use all those things to feed this very interesting character. And, it, and, and the, the worse I felt, the better I acted. <laughs> <laughs> And what can you say about this production taking place in Denmark, filmed in Croatia by a Finnish director, co-written by an American and a Brit, and you're an American playing a Danish character? How did all that work out and the challenges? <laughs> well, you know, the look, honest thing was it was very hard to navigate from a from an accent or language standpoint because we we're like well what accent are we doing and, and it really became we we're trying we were trying to do a neutral non-accent that was not danish it was not finnish it was not russian it was not croatian it was not american it was not you know, it was not british it was like and so i i don't know if i succeeded at that but i do say we, we had that challenge but it was fascinating for me because i was the only native english-speaking actor on the movie mm. now there's been some talk of like well why did you guys make this movie in english and the you know the very simple fact is just economics mm. english-speaking movies have a much wider um or english language movies have a huge much wider range in terms of their commercial viability so that was you know that was why i mean the fact is it should have been done in in danish right so but the but because the film the crew and the cast was, I mean, from every country in the world, I was the only American, but there was, you know, there was British actors, there was Croatian actors, there was Russian actors, there was Finnish actors, there was Danish actors. Mm -hmm. It was really amazing that way and exciting from a, from a, you know, a world filmmaking standpoint. That, mm -hmm. that to me is why, one of the reasons I did this job from mm -hmm. the very beginning mm -hmm. and to you've, go explore the world. 
And you've played real people before, as wide-ranging as Neil Cassidy and Big Sur and Charles Lindbergh and J. Edgar. How would you compare and contrast those challenges? You know, I believe playing a real character is by far the most rewarding. Mm. It's also, in a way, possibly the most challenging because you got to get it right. You know, there's going to be like to a fictional character you create in your mind and nobody really is going to bug you about it. But a, a, a real character that people have relationships with or knowledge about or, or their own mind is set on how that person should look and act. And um, it becomes much more challenging and, and much more rewarding because, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. And the research is always kind of leading me down this path to understand that the character is way more complicated uh, in reality than I could ever play. And that's one of the things I love about being a human being. And one of the things I love about storytelling. And what can you say or not about what's coming up in the last installment of The Purge, the final Purge, and what you'll be up to in the film? You know, I am very excited about that movie in a way that is sort of surprising, not because, look, I, the Purge movies are always political and always interesting. They're, they're much more kind of artistic horror films than, and political horror films than I think people realize. Um, but the final purge probably is the most political yet. And it, we shot it pre-COVID, but it is shocking in its concepts of what America is going through. And the, um, the, the filmmaking is this extraordinary Mexican filmmaker with an almost entirely Mexican cast. The movie deals intensively in, in racial issues. It deals intensively in the divisions that are going on in this country. Um, the filmmaking is at a level that I don't think uh, many horror films are ever made at that level. And I am genuinely like, thrilled about this film. And uh, uh, I, can't, I can't wait for people to begin to see, you know, both the images from it, the trailer, and, and the movie itself, because it's something very special. Mm. And getting back to Murderous Trance, what are your thoughts about what this film is conveying in a larger sense about human history? You know, I think, unfortunately, I go back a little bit to the Harrell book, um, Sapiens, you know, that extraordinary book about the history of humanity or history of Homo sapiens. And I think one of the things that book talks about is the way that there are these movements through history of, of humanity, of, of, uh, of history. And I think the this story, you know, look, it comes out of World War II. It comes out of the Nazi party. It comes out of a desire to create um, a utopian society, a, you know, you could say an Aryan society, maybe even. And I think some of those big movements um, that are so horrible and create wars and, and all that are, this movie is dealing with on a very micro level, but the movie itself, I think is asking much, much bigger questions and also relate very clearly in terms of what we're dealing with today. I think the the issue that we don't have in that movie that we have today is how uh, social media and the internet have just a massive impact. And also that, you know, AI, like what level is AI playing in terms of our social media these days? Um, and that's a, that's a big, terrifying question that I'm really thinking about a lot these days. And I wanted to ask you, there are very interesting touches in the film when you growl and bark. <laughs> were, were those your ideas at all? You know, they were. And then what happened, the director kind of heard me doing it a little bit. And then he decided, well, well, what if we played with it even a little bit more? And they did some really extraordinary stuff during sound, during the sound design. Um, and again, it comes down to, you know, wildly complicated knowledge that the director has about hypnosis and the reason why he told me this the reason why a, a, a wolf growls is to terrify its um, prey into freezing and so he said you know that there's these instinctual responses that human beings have to sound and to um to to, to symbols and to sounds and so he was he was really playing with some very deep stuff um and we were doing those things uh, on purpose, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, Josh Lucas, for calling into our show. 
and I will certainly get the word out about this fascinating film. Hey, I really appreciate it. Again, as I said in the beginning, we're, we're a tiny little movie, and, and you're doing something for it. it helps out a lot. I really appreciate it. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye. Bye. A Murderous Trance is out now online. And coming up next on the show, in the Arts Express screening room, R is for Rosa, a selection from the three-part series on Rosa Luxemburg on the occasion of the 150th anniversary of her birth on March 5th, directed and narrated by Paul Mason and starring Josephine Rogers as Rosa Luxemburg. And R is for Rosa is an Arts Express highlight of Women Moving History, a Women's History Month feature presentation on the show. My name is Rosa Luxemburg. I was born in Zamost, Poland. Then it was a socialist free zone. But that didn't stop me. Rosa Luxemburg joined the socialist underground in Poland at the age of 16. As its leaders were jailed and executed, she fled to Zurich. She was a rising star in the international socialist movement when, in 1898, at the age of 27, she moved to Berlin to take part in the political battle that would define the rest of her life. Imagine, it's the start of a new century and the German working class has built a mass socialist party. It's led by Marxists, technically in favour of a revolution, and the state is totally undemocratic. What do you do? Do you focus on the long, slow, patient, parliamentary road to socialism, or do you focus on something that seems quite remote for now, a revolution? Edward Bernstein, one of the party's leading thinkers, said, forget revolution. The working class don't want one. They can't make one anyway because they're too divided by skills and hierarchies. Concentrate instead on the slow drip of reforms like the eight-hour day, democratising the army or educating the workers. Rosa Luxemburg attacked Bernstein mercilessly. Between socialism and capitalism, the state is building a steadily rising wall. Only the hammer blow of revolution can break down this wall. In Germany, the reform or revolution debate was still theoretical. But in the Russian Empire, which began just across the border in Poland, it was real. In 1905, workers all over Russia went on general strike. They formed elected councils called Soviets and launched what Rosa Luxemburg had been dreaming of, the revolution. Now, Luxemburg toured Germany, whipping up support for the workers on strike across the Russian Empire. And in December 1905, she took a decisive step. She moved to Warsaw to join the revolution. My name is now Anna Machka, journalist. Warsaw was under martial law. There were riots, pogroms and bombings. With the police searching everywhere for left-wing activists, Rosa, together with her partner Leo Yogisha, got caught in a roundup. He was given eight years hard labour. She was released after five months and moved to Finland under yet another false name. My name is now Felicia Budelovich, journalist. In Finland, Luxembourg met Lenin and the leaders of the mass strikes that had gripped Russia for over a year. They discussed tactics and the lessons of the 1905 revolution, and she wrote a pamphlet that would shake the moderate leaders of European socialism to their very bones. 
the mass strike of the political party and the trade unions. The reformist leaders said revolutions in Western Europe are premature because the workers aren't educated enough to hold power. Education has to happen slowly through night schools and election campaigns. Revolutionaries like Lenin said that can be fixed by having a small underground party of intellectuals to prepare the revolution with underground newspapers and a disciplined organisation. Luxembourg said the mass strike is the bridge between reform and revolution. In a mass strike, workers learn how to run society and they improvise the organisations they need to do it. Nobody can plan it. What the party has to do, once it starts, is lead it to victory. In the mass strikes in Russia, spontaneity plays such a predominant part, not because the Russian workers are uneducated, but because revolutions do not allow anyone to play the schoolmaster with them. The mass strike is the first natural, impulsive form of every great revolutionary struggle of the proletariat. And the more highly developed the antagonism is between capital and labour, the more effective and decisive must mass strikes become. The party leaders were terrified. The German government threw Luxembourg in jail for, they said, inciting a riot. But her ideas were contagious. Before 1905, the whole idea of a revolution in a developed country had seemed remote. Now, Rosa Luxemburg pushed right into the centre of the conversation the idea of spontaneous action. A revolution not prepared by years training in a night school, nor by a small conspiratorial group, but arising out of the experience of working class people themselves. Express. This is Jack Shalom. At a time like this, when we are pretty much limited in our ability to see art in traditional indoor museum settings, I was happy to stumble over the website Art at a Time Like This. The website was created in March of 2020, a month I think we all remember. And the website is the brainchild of our two guests today, Barbara Pollock and Anne Verhollen. So, hi, and welcome to the show. I'm going to say hi to Barbara first. Hi, Jack. And Anne. Hi, how are you? Thank you so Great. much for having us today. Thank you so much. Well, let's just start off. How did art at a time like this begin? So, on March 13th, New York had announced to close their, the galleries and museum spaces. Uh, this was a Friday. I woke up and I felt that there needs to be a space that art could still be shown or be viewed and be interacted with in a time of crisis. And so I called Barbara and I was like, do you want to do an online exhibition with me? And she said, absolutely. And this is what the name should be. And so we curated and launched our first exhibition called How Can We Think About Art at a Time Like This? The mm -hmm. Monday Following. So we wow. worked <laughs> we worked like three days in a row and launched the site. And the two of you have worked together before. Not yeah, really. We, have, we haven't. <laughs> we were actually talking about that the other day. We were like, uh -huh. would you have imagined that we would have a, a nonprofit business together? Uh -huh. One thing that came up for us is that we really agreed that art should have a meaning in terms of the broader society. And that was something we found we agreed on a lot. And that has been a motivating thing to art at a time like this. And did you suspect that you would 
still be in the middle of a pandemic a year later? Well, I definitely knew that it was going to take longer. Like, I think a lot of people initially in March were talking about a two-week quarantine, and I expected Mm. it to be much longer. I felt that in some weird way, we needed that disruption of our behavior. And I think we were in in a place where our society went through a lot of changes very quickly and we weren't able to sort of stand still and and choose a direction. And I think artists, curators can be great leaders in times like these. And in one way, we were proven right because from the very first Mm -hmm. week, incredible artists wanted to participate. And, you know, we had everybody from Iowa Way and Marilyn Minter and Sharin Nishat to emerging new artists. And so that was very exciting and very encouraging. I first became aware of you through your project titled Ministry of Truth 1984-2020. Could you tell us about that project and how the idea developed and why the title? Well... We wanted to do something as a public art project in the streets of New York so that people could see it, whether they went to galleries regularly or not. And we scheduled it to run a few weeks before the election. So we specifically invited several artists who we knew were doing work around the election And then the other half of the artists came from an open call that we did. And we got responses from all over the world, quite frankly. For 20 billboards, we got 1,200 applications. What we wanted to do was tie in the Trump campaign to the language in George Orwell's book, 1984, where the Ministry of Truth is a propaganda agency that says lies are truth and war is peace and, you know, manipulates the language in the way we felt it was being done during the campaign. It was highly successful. We reached millions of people and the New York Times recognized it as one of the most important moments in art in 2020, which was beyond our wildest dreams that we would get such recognition. Could you describe a few of the billboards that are in the Ministry of Truth project? Yeah, I mean, what's also important, I don't know if Barbara touched upon it, but we collaborated with another nonprofit called Safe Art Space. Um, uh-huh. they, they were founded in 2015, and they focus on uh, bringing art to replacing advertisement with art. Mm. Um, but we had, for example, Mel Chin's work, um, what, which was uh, essentially two flags opposite of each other and, and sewed together. Um, and with with the text "Unite this flag," which was one of my favorites, in in terms of talking about the polarized situation in the United States, which I thought was very important to talk about in this show. I was particularly impressed with the Sue Co billboard. We are the many; they are the few. Yes, yeah, Sue Co has been incredibly supportive to us. She's a British artist who has done political work for her own fifty year career, and she immediately responded with this image that she had been working on about police brutality. You know, we are the many is the mass of people in the picture with a few policemen smacking them with billy clubs, a very searing image. How did you go about finding the locations of the artwork? It was actually pretty challenging, but also a very fun process. So the, so the billboard project, uh, billboard company gave us a map of, I think, 200 billboards to choose from. And the show was presented in the five boroughs because we thought it was really important to bring the art to the five boroughs of New York City. Choosing from 200 billboards on a map, which we didn't have the time to view them all or like bike by them or drive by them. So it was definitely very interesting. But we really looked to the art and saw where we thought it might bring some controversy or perhaps where it might be close to one of the artist's studios or where the artist lived and curated through the five boroughs. What kind of reactions did you get from the local communities? Well, what was interesting is the biggest reaction we got was from the billboard company 
which uh-huh. made us put stickers on all the billboards saying this project was paid for by Save Out Space because they felt like it was too political to just put up as advertising. So that was an interesting thing to uh-huh. negotiate. They wanted to sort of disconnect with the message that the show brought forward, which is the whole point and our whole mission is to kind of create a space where art could be viewed without censorship. Um, and, and unfortunately, was no, uh, notified to us two days prior, so we had to deal with, with oh the stickers goodness. being being <laughs> because the billboards were already produced. Yes, um, and getting but, approval from all the artists at the last minute about uh, putting the the sticker on their artworks. You know? Oh my goodness! I could imagine how they some of them might be upset. Well, I found fascinating seeing the artwork on your website. You not only have the billboards, but you also have photos of them in context. And often one billboard is next to another more commercial billboard. And that was kind of fascinating to see the juxtaposition between some of the political art and then the commercial messages that they were right next to. I was curious if there was any conscious thought about what message went where. Or was, were those just happy accidents? Well, there were there were happy accidents. We knew that there would be multiple billboards in some of these locations, and there would be advertising there. But obviously, we didn't know who had bought these spots. You know, like we also came in and bought our spots, and so some of these are happy coincidences. But yes, they were certainly interesting images to see them next to each other. I personally was thrilled to replace. Every Cars for Kids billboard <laughs> with like a Madeline Minter and a Dan Prochofsky. I mean, this made me very happy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not only what they're next to, but what they've replaced, which is uh, a service as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're a nonprofit. Um, you don't, you're not selling artwork. What is your funding? How do you keep it together? <laughs> well, well, currently we're, um, we've been very blessed with the support of individuals. You know, we are at a time like this. We've had 150,000 people view our online exhibition in the first two, three months. So we have a really strong following that loves to see what we do and has continued to support us. Yeah, I was absolutely struck by the uh, international character of the people who commented on your site. There were people from uh, the Netherlands, Madagascar, Greece, Germany, yeah, uh, I think we've, we've Los had, Angeles. We have, we have Even Brooklyn. From, yeah, we have, we have visitors from over 100 different countries. And Barbara, you've done a lot of research on the current art scene in China. And I know you wrote a book called uh, Brand New Art from China, Generation on the Rise. I was curious, could Tell us a little bit about that, what you've seen, what, what's unique about what's happening now in China. It's very interesting what's happening under Xi Jinping. There is an enormous amount of self-censorship going on. There's a huge art market in China. It's as big as the art market in the United States. And there's a whole group of artists emerging now who came to worldwide attention around 2010 who are still in their 30s. And they're exploding and really exploring the international art scene. But within China, things are a little scary right now. So it's an interesting contradiction going on. What kind of subject matter and themes uh, are the Chinese artists dealing with? A lot of them are dealing with globalization and the impact of Western influences on China and their work. That is a huge topic for them, but they do it without referring to the Chinese government. Uh huh. So they have to be a little circumspect about what they. Oh yeah. What they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There are real penalties if you go after the government itself. If I were at a cocktail party with the two of you, <laughs> here's what I would ask you. You've been very successful in getting attention for the website, and you've been covered by the New York Times, the New Yorker, and Forbes. What's your secret? We, Anne and I, are clearly different generations. This is an intergenerational project. So our Uh contact spread is enormous. Uh Because I have contacts from being in the art world for 30 years, 
And Anne has contacts to a whole new generation of artists and dealers and curators coming up. So we're able to cover, you know, reach out to an enormous amount of people from our own experiences. As we wrap up, is there anything else either one of you would like to add? Yes. If you'd like to contribute artworks or have statements you want to send us in reaction to what we're doing, or if you want to send us money, go to www.artatatimelikethis.com and there's a place for all of that on the website. Great. And? Part of our project is that we want to have a dialogue and we want to initiate a dialogue about these topics. So comments are welcome. We have a comments page and we look forward to hearing from everyone. Great. Thank you well, so much, Jack. Well, thanks so much, Barbara Pollock and Anne Verhollen, curators and founders of the website Art at a Time Like This at artatatimelikethis.com. And this is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do Put it in our minds Surely things will work out They do it every time The world won't get no better If we just let it be The world won't get no better We gotta change it Just you and me Yeah, change it.